0: 590 and 591 in your pew bible let's read it together a psalm of asaph god has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked give justice to the weak and the fatherless maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute rescue the weak and the needy deliver them from the hand of the wicked they have neither knowledge nor understanding they walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken i said you are gods sons of the most high all of you nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince arise O god judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you now for the opportunity to give our attention to it. Uh, Lord, we would pray this morning uh, that you would grant us the ability to think biblically about uh, the subject that is in front of us. Father, we, uh, we care deeply about politics. In fact, we might argue that for some, we, we care a bit too much. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that we would be able to prioritize our affections appropriately and that, Lord, our thoughts and our intentions would be governed uh, not by the spirit of our age, but they would rather be governed by what your word has to say to us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this sermon will frustrate some, if not all of you. I say that because I know it frustrates me. When you discover that Psalm 82 has an application to politics, that it's really about the exercise of earthly power and dominion, then you suddenly have particular expectations. And so from the very beginning this morning, let me try to manage those expectations. My task is to preach Psalm 82 in light of the entire canon of scripture. My task this morning is not to preach a topical sermon on Christians and politics. Now, having said that, there's nothing wrong with topical sermons. And there is certainly a place and a time to preach probably a series of topical sermons about Christians and politics. However, <clears throat> As we make our way through the Psalms, my task, and quite honestly, my task, generally speaking, week after week, is to preach that particular text in light of its place in and understanding that there's are 65 other books in the Bible. And so my task is not to preach uh, what the Bible says about politics, but my task is to preach Psalm 82 in light of the entire canon. See, I know that there is much more that could be said about Christians and politics. There may even be more that ought to be said this morning. I would suggest it might make for an interesting Sunday school or a one-off gathering on a Sunday night uh, to have the folks in our congregation who have served, who are serving in public life, Walk us through how they are approaching that particular task. But that's not my task this morning. My task this morning is Psalm 82. And so in service of that task, I invite you to turn to page five in your bulletin. And there you'll find both an outline for our time together and something that we call the big idea. The big idea in one sentence, hopefully, is what the sermon is about. So our big idea this morning for Psalm 82 is this. God has a deep and abiding concern with the exercise of political power. God has a deep and abiding concern with the exercise of political power. Now, let's remind ourselves of the situation in which this particular psalm was written. This is a post- exilic psalm. In other words, God's people in both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom have been taken into exile. They are no longer living in the promised land. They are no longer living within the geographical confines of what we know to be Israel. And as we read the Old Testament, as we read in particular 1 and 2 Kings and First and 2 Chronicles, what becomes clear to us is one of the reasons that the people lost the land is because the kings, the one who was supposed to be atten- pay attention to what God's word had to say to God's people. Instead, we read over and over again in First and 2 Kings, as the writer summarizes for us the reign of all of the kings of Israel, one of two things is either said about them. Not They were a fiscal conservative, strong on defense, right? Good on education. No. What we read is this. So-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or we read, and -and so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's it. That's the entire summation of the exercise of power of the kings of Israel and Judah. See, the thing that the writer is most concerned with is whether or not their hearts were turned to Yahweh. And because their hearts were not turned to Yahweh, because they did not heed a text like Psalm 82, God's people have been taken into captivity. And so the people of God As they read, Psalm 82 would have understood this to be a very accurate sort of post-mortem in terms of what happened to our nation, what happened to our country. Why are we living in Assyria? Why are we living in Babylon? Why are we not back in Israel? Well, we're not back because our kings judged unjustly. They showed partiality to the wicked. They did not maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute in other words they did what was evil in the eyes of the lord now psalm 82 comes to us in three different thoughts three different ideas in verses one to four we see god's call for just governance in verses one to four we see god's call for just governance now We're going to read it again, and I realize that as we do, you're going to be going, Pastor, how in the world do you think this is about uh, human leaders? How is this about the exercise of political power? Let's read it, and then we'll talk about the options and see why I'm arguing. I think it's about the exercise of political power. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, there are three views that scholars generally hold about this particular text and understanding who exactly it is when, when the text speaks of a divine counsel in God's, what are we actually talking about There are some who would argue that what's going on here is this is leftover polytheism. Since all of the nations around Israel held to polytheism, surely Israel would have to do something similar. And so they're arguing what's happened is uh, Asaph borrowed this psalm from a a neighboring country and the editor just forgot to scratch out the piece about gods and the the piece about a divine council. Well, the problem with that particular view is that the Bible is consistent from beginning to end about one great central theme. Namely, there's only one God. The Bible never gives credence to the idea that there are multiple gods. In fact, in the very beginning, in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not multiple gods, but God created the heavens and the earth furthermore from beginning to end the bible teaches something we would call ethical monotheism in other words god is not just up in heaven he wasn't just the one that started everything and now he's going to stand back and go hey y'all just figure it out by the way you're making kind of a mess of it but just figure it out that's called deism Now, everywhere along the way, the Bible tells us that the one who created the heavens and the earth is also the one who judges the heavens and the earth. And he is intimately involved in all that happens under the realm of human existence. We see it right away, don't we? After we read that God has created the heavens and the earth, in Genesis chapter 3, God doesn't say to Adam and Eve, well, y'all have just messed this up, so you're going to have to figure it out. No, it's God who comes in loving and gracious judgment. The same thing is true in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain kills his brother Abel, God doesn't just stand back and go, well, you know, sin entered the world. What would you expect? No, he comes to Cain and he lovingly warns him. And then after he gives into the temptation, God comes to Cain and says, hey, wait a minute. Don't you know that the ground has cried out? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the very ground itself. Friends, the Bible nowhere teaches polytheism. From beginning to end, the Bible teaches what we would call ethical monotheism. There is one God. He controls and rules and reigns everything. And he is intimately involved in the lives and all that goes on under the umbrella of human existence. The second possibility. And by the way, I hope it's clear that we're rejecting the first possibility. This is not polytheism, right? The second possibility is this, that it's talking about demonic or angelic rulers who are actually behind those who are in positions of power. This one's a, it's, it's a very much a minority view, and it's a little more confusing to grasp, but we get it, or some scholars hold this because of what we read in uh, places in the Bible like Daniel chapter 10 through chapter 12, and then sections in the book of Revelation. See, in Daniel 10 to 12, we're told uh, that Daniel prays. He's very concerned about something. And the Lord is going to actually send an angel to Daniel in answer to his prayer. But he is impeded, the angel tells us, uh, by the spirit of the prince of Persia. So Michael has to come and help him out. And so the basic thinking is what the Bible teaches. And we believe this is true that there are actually spiritual realities behind earthly rulers. It's certainly something that was taught or that is taught in the book of Revelation. And while it's something that the Bible teaches, the reason I don't think that's what this text is talking about is because of how Jesus quoted this text for us in our New Testament reading for this morning. Remember what Alex read for us? Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees were upset because Jesus had said that I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees are quite upset. They're ready to stone him. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 time out. Don't your own scriptures speak of you as sons of God? Well, if that's true of human rulers... How much more is that true of the Messiah? Friends, Jesus doesn't understand Psalm 82 to be about demonic or angelic rulers who are behind earthly rulers or authorities. And so we're just going to we're going to just say, as a rule of thumb, we're going to side with Jesus. This is not about demonic or angelic rulers. It is then about civil rulers. It's about human beings who, by their vocation, mediate God's rule and justice. Let me say that again. Civil rulers are to mediate God's rule and justice. The Bible teaches us, again, from beginning to end, that those who are in power are there because they have been appointed by God human rulers are to mediate god's rule and justice they are appointed by him and so god speaks highly of them he thinks highly of them they have a particular role and task to play now verse one is not uh, a council in which god is seeking advice it's a council in which God is passing judgment. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. So this is not this is not God uh, calling on human rulers, going, "Hey, what do you think? What are we going to do?" I'm a little unsure about some of this. Uh, let let's let's spitball this, right, and see what we can come up with. No, this is God. Calling human rulers that he has appointed who are supposed to be mediating his rule and justice. This is God calling them and holding them accountable. And here's God's call to them. He says you're supposed to be doing two things. You're supposed to be caring for the marginalized. And you're supposed to be defending the vulnerable from the wicked. Look at verses 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God's call for those who are to be exercising his rule and justice is that they would care for the marginalized and they would defend The vulnerable from the wicked. Now, again, please hear what the word of God is not saying. It's not talking about small governance. It's not talking about what we would think of uh, on, on either side of the political aisle, that would be planks of their particular political platform. No, this is the word of God saying, hey, listen, those whom I have appointed to mediate my rule and my justice, they better be caring for the marginalized and they better be defending the vulnerable from the wicked. Now, once we've said that and once we've realized that, uh, there's a couple things that we got to sort of tease out and, and figure out and do a better job of. Here they are. First, people of good conscience can disagree how this ought to be done. But what we cannot disagree with is that those who hold positions of civic power are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They are to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They are to rescue the weak and the needy and to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Full stop. We can disagree about what that looks like. But we cannot just step back and go, well, you know, the weak and the needy don't matter. Here's an interesting conversation uh, to have with a friend who's not a Christian, who's very much engaged in politics, who thinks that good governance and and, uh, equal justice under the law is a good thing. Uh, Ask them, on the basis of what? Because we live in a world that says, and in fact, we have this whole theory of how things came into being that says, well, no, basically, uh, only the strong survive. Well, if only the strong survive, why should we care about rescuing the weak and the needy? Why should we care about delivering them from the hand of the wicked? I mean, that's just social Darwinism. If you can't keep up, it sucks to be you. On what basis should anyone who's not a Christian care for equal justice under the law? Why would they care about good governance? Why would they care that the marginalized are looked after and that folks are actually serious about defending the vulnerable from the wicked? But people can disagree about what that's going to look like but the Bible tells us it ought to happen. Here's the other thing that I think we need to be mindful of as we wrestle with God's call for just governance. It requires a kind of discourse, and I don't just mean uh, in places of political decision-making. I mean amongst us. It requires a kind of discourse that's not really easily or well done at the moment. And I want to suggest to you that social media is not a good, helpful, or appropriate venue in which to try to have these conversations. Uh, I've unfriended a lot of people. Because I just don't want to hear your rant. I just don't. And at the end of the day, I'm not convinced. And you're just kind of being mean and snarky. And you know what? There's enough garbage going on in my life. I mean, for crying out loud, my daughter's getting married. I don't need any more stress. And so I don't need your rant. I don't need your rant about border stuff. I don't need your rant about stolen elections. I don't need, I just, I just don't need it. And furthermore, that's not the context in which to have the conversation It's just not, there's no dialogue. There's no seeking to understand your brother or sister. And it's not an appropriate way to love your neighbor as yourself when you're beating them over the head with your post and with your memes. People of good conscience can disagree how these things ought to be done. And we need to go back to a kind of discourse. It's not easily accessible at the moment, and it doesn't include social media. Secondly, we see God's complaint against unjust governance. God's complaint is found in verse 5. Those who are supposed to be mediating God's rule and justice have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, uh, the writer here is using those words when he talks about knowledge or understanding. Uh, those are terms that carry with them moral force. They don't get right from wrong. And because they don't get right from wrong, and because they walk about then in darkness, which again is not just an absence of light, it's speaking there of there's a kind of moral and spiritual darkness. Because that's true, all the foundations of the earth have been shaken. In other words, the entire entire moral order has been upset to its very core. Now, the question that the psalmist doesn't answer for us that I wish he would is, okay, if that's true, how in the world are God's people supposed to live? What are we supposed to do when things that are clearly not right, when things that are clearly indicative of stumbling about in the darkness, we're being told, well, no, those things are right, and that's the law, and that's the rule of the land. How are we supposed to live? Let me just say this. Again, this is outside of the scope of what we can talk about this morning, but I would encourage you, on your own, read First and Second Peter. You want to understand how God's people are called to live as a remnant in exile. First and Second Peter will be really, really helpful to you. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this particular complaint in the Psalms. In fact, we heard it right away in Psalm 2. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree of the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is not the first time in the Psalms we've understood that the nations rage and the kings are plotting against God. We don't like the fact Uh, We don't like in any instance in which we're told that our power is not absolute, but it's a derivative. And we don't like the idea, any of us, not just those who are elected officials, uh, we don't like the idea that I'm going to have to give an account for uh, whatever responsibility I've been given. We are a law unto ourselves. Thank you very much. God's complaint is that those who are to mediate his rule and justice are not doing so. And because of their foolishness, because they lack knowledge and understanding, because they're blundering about in the darkness, all the foundations of the earth have been shaken. Thirdly, we see God's warning. God's warning in verses 6 to 8 is this. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's interesting, isn't it, that in his words of warning, God nonetheless affirms the importance of what they are doing. That as those who are appointed by him, as those who are called to mediate his rule in justice, they have, as it were, an exalted place. They have a very particular and very special role to play. And yet, while he affirms all of that in verse 6, he reminds them in verse 7 that they are going to die and they will fall like any prince. Now, this would have been shocking words in the ancient Near East. For in the in the cultural context in which uh, the psalmist is writing, all of the nations, in fact, the nations in which Israel would have been dwelling, they all would have thought of, the, of their king as being divine. So when you read, for example, in the book of Daniel and you're going, a really, does Nebuchadnezzar really think he can put up a golden image and everybody's going to bow down and worship him? Like what, what kind of ego trip is that guy on? Well, he's on the same ego trip as every other ruler in the ancient Near East. In fact, to be fair, there's a pretty reasonable expectation culturally that a a king could set themselves up as being divine as if they're someone who ought to be worshipped. Same way, King Darius. Why does Daniel end up in the lion's den? Because Daniel prays to God and not to King Darius. See, it's a common expectation in the ancient Near East. that The king is somehow divine. And notice the tension that the psalmist holds. You're sons of the Most High, all of you. But you're going to die. And you're going to fall like any prince. And now in verse 8, the people speak. Here's the their cry they're going to say what is implied but not explicitly said verse 8 arise O king judge the earth for you shall inherit the nations what's god warning them about he's warning them hey listen you're gonna die and when you do you're gonna stand in front of me and i'm going to judge you and i'm not going to judge you for how savvy you were I'm not going to judge you on uh, how well you served your party or if you took one for the team or all the things that we would or how many times you got reelected. I'm going to judge you on things like did you care for the marginalized and did you defend the vulnerable from the wicked? I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to judge you because at the end of verse 8, I created all of it. It's mine. I'm going to get it back. Your power is derivative. Your power is inherited. Now, friends, I hope this will inform the way in which we will be praying about our leaders and those who govern us. I hope that it means that we could start praying for them in light of the judgment that they're going to face. I found it's helpful to pray for those who are elected officials in terms of thinking about, hey, uh, Father, would you please just help them to realize that their power is inherited and it's derivative, not merely from the people that they govern, but it's inherited and derivative from you. They're not the supreme force in the universe, but you are. And so what would it look like if we prayed for our leaders in that light? If we prayed for them, knowing that there is a judgment that is to come. And knowing that we need them to govern. We need them to exercise God's rule and justice because their position is inherited and derivative from him. In just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul tells us that every time we come to the table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. See, the judgment that is spoken of in Psalm 82 is not just some sort of pipe dream. It's not some sort of wish that the Old Testament writer has because after all they're living in exile and all the other nations have beat up on them and kick sand in their face and now they're, they, they don't even have their own country anymore. No, the writer of Psalm 82 writes verse 8 understanding and knowing that there's coming a day in which God is going to judge the earth and he's going to do so through his son who came the first time, pretty much under the radar, but the second time he's coming in power and in glory and in judgment. But we forget that. We forget that we know how the book ends. We forget that ultimately God wins. We forget that the promise that is made in verse eight, that the cry of God's people, God, would you judge the earth? we forget that it is really actually going to happen and that it's the second person of the Trinity. It's through Jesus Christ that the earth is going to be judged. And so God gives us a reminder. He gives us the table. Not just so that we can remember the fact that Jesus died for it, not for his own sin, but for our own. But that we can indeed remember that he is coming again. And he's coming again in power and in judgment and in glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you uh, that uh, creation is not an accident. It's not a theory. But creation was a divine act and by a loving God with intentionality and purpose and we thank you that we do not live in a universe governed by a deist a God who merely got everything rolling and then just stood back and said well y'all it out but we bless you that you are God as we saw last week you hear you see you know And, Father, you will judge, you will hold those accountable to whom you have given authority and power. So, Lord, we do want to lift up our elected officials to you this morning. And we pray that they would, first and foremost, understand that their power is both inherited and derivative, not just from the people that they govern, but it is divinely inherited and it is derived from God's rule and reign. And Father, then we pray that they would indeed use that power wisely, understanding that they're going to have to face judgment, a judgment that's far worse than re-election or some sort of uh, review or some sort of oversight from another branch. Lord, one day they're going to have to stand in front of you, as we all are, and give an account for their life. Father, we thank you that as certainly as the Lord Jesus came the first time, he is coming again. And so, Father, we would pray with John the Revelator, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we ask this in his name. Amen.